The Beaux-Arts Photography Podcast with Alan and Natalie Brio. Yesterday we stopped at number 58, which is the interview with Peter Urban, and we're going to start there today. Let's get started by listening to a sample of the interview that I did with Peter Urban, which is a movie, you know, actually. But we are not going to watch the movie here because it's a podcast on audio, but we're going to listen to part of it of the pyramid is you right you know i mean you know we shouldn't go see somebody because we need help having done something that's wrong you know if i go see a marketing consultant and i say my rep is literally you know abusing me you know for the reason that i just described right. the first thing that person is going to tell me is stop dealing with that person. yeah qu quit it yeah quit it yeah. exactly so you you know a very important rule in business is you want to be able to to say enough you know this is not working uh, you know, David, uh, Donald Trump says, okay, you're fired, you can use that if that works for you. <laughs> you have to put an end to abusive relationships, and that was one of them. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I had to put an end to it. I also quit working with every gallery. The most asked last question after, you know, how do I find a rep is, should I work with galleries? Well, I mean, you know, if you want to spend half of your money paying somebody to sell your work, sure. But if you, if you look at it that way, um, you can also make half of the money selling your work yourself. Right. And, and, and the advantage of selling your work yourself, and this dovetails into taking care of your destiny, is that you have the customer contact information. Right. And that's very important because that means you can market to them again after the sale. If you work with a gallery, the gallery is going to keep that information. They're not going to give you the phone number, the email, or even the name of the person. And the minute you've made a sale for the gallery, you have to continue making sales through the gallery. And then on top of that, most contracts say that if you, if you sell to a customer through the gallery, you can never sell privately to the customer. Right. So you know, taking control of your destiny is a sort of, uh, let's put it this way, um, you know, an on-off switch. That is, you either make that decision or you don't. You can't go 50-50. Right. Right. An interesting excerpt. Yeah. On my favorite subject, or one of my favorite subjects, which is uh, business, but also on controlling your destiny. So many artists feel that they have no control over their career, you know, over their destiny. Right. They leave a lot to chance. Yes. To just whoever will discover them, to whoever is going to come in and change their lives, hopefully, right. for the better. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there's no doubt that if you let that hanging, Sooner or later, somebody or something is going to come and change your life, but it's not necessarily for the better. Right, right. <laughs> it could be for the worst, or, or it could be basically of no consequence. Waiting to be discovered. Yeah, I think you opened the door to all sorts of things, good yes. and bad. Yeah, I agree. And I think that when you're in control and you can say no, you're a lot better off. You know, I mean, there's so many things when you deal over the web with customers that can happen. I mean, just a few days ago, I had a scammer that contacted me and said, uh, I need artwork. Well, the way he put it is he said, uh, I was looking over my wife's shoulder and she was browsing your website on her laptop and she loved your work. By the way, very good job. And I decided I want some of your work to give to her. You know, and this is all written in very poor English. Obviously, not a native speaker and somebody that's writing in a hurry and, and so on. And so I have a question. Do you take checks? And also, can you ship fast? This is urgent. You know, it had all the trimmings of uh, a scam because I have PayPal buttons on my site. If you want something, you just click and you pay, right? Right. And 
99.9% of the people in this world pay with credit card. And, you know, asking if I take a check is not really an issue. If you want to send a check, you know, there's a, a form on my site that you can download and print. And people, once in a great while, print that form and send a check with it. Right. Okay, no big deal. The red flag is when somebody says, you take a check, and then at the same time says, I need it shipped urgently, because what we are doing is we're going to send you a check, make sure that you understand it has to be shipped right away, the check doesn't have time to clear, and then the check bounces. Exactly. That's, that's the typical well, scam. Or another scam that they have is they'll send you a money order and again tell you, you know, please ship as soon as possible. The money order, you know, is obviously, you know, you can trust it. And you put it in the bank and again, the money order is a fake money order. Yeah, and there and, are And you're out of the, of the artwork. And so I first uh, answered the person by telling them that, yes, I take checks. I mean, you know, hey, listen, we take checks. We have renters and we pay by check, you know. And they also pay by money order and money grams. Yeah, I mean, we've had every form of payment, you know, right. over the years. And um, I said, which one do you want? And he said, oh, I want you to choose one between $500 and $3,000, and I want good color and nice composition. Oh, okay, yeah. So this guy hasn't even looked at my artwork. Right. So I answered, I thought, you know, at this point, I'm 99.9999% sure that this is a scam. You know, it's like gold. Gold is never pure at 100%. It's pure at 9.9999 because there's always a little bit of impurity. So I was sure to the level of gold. And I told him, I said, well, what I recommend is a photograph that I took at Scammer State Park in Arkansas called Scammer 1, which is part of a series that has Scammer 1, Scammer 2, Scammer 3, all the way to Scammer 12. And, uh, you know, beautiful color and great composition. Let me know if uh, you are interested in this uh, artwork. And he emailed back, he says, there is no photo. (laughs) Because there was no photo because, you know, Scammer State Park does not exist, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right. And I've never been to Arkansas. And so I said, I emailed back and I said, no, you don't understand. This is Scammer series. It's one of the most exciting series I've created. And I repeated myself and uh, I sent it back. And this time I never heard back. Right. And then I had an email which I forwarded to you from Aki Hinsa, which is uh, a person that I follow because he was the trainer. He passed away just this year, and he was the trainer of uh, several Formula One drivers, including Lewis Hamilton, Sebastian Vettel, and many others. And he has an institute called Hinsa Performance. And I had just got an email from them um, on their newsletter that said how to increase the performance of your brain. And I thought this scammer needed to increase the performance of his brand, so I forwarded him that email. (laughs) Oh, did you? (laughs) But all of that is possible because I don't expect somebody to just come and make me famous. I don't have that expectation. I've taken care of my destiny. Right. And all of that happened because of the very first, and to this day, the only business class I've ever taken, which was in Market, Michigan. It was a free class organized by the Chamber of Commerce in Market. And uh, it was called uh, The Artist in Business, Taking Care of Your Own Destiny. Right. And it was done or taught by a lady called Libby Plattus. And to this day, I remember her name. Right. Even though my encounter with her was just from that day. And it changed my life. Because what she said, it was a one-day seminar. So obviously she said a lot of things, you know, for one day. But the center of what she said, the core, was that you should take control of your own destiny and not wait for somebody to discover you. If they discover you and they make you famous and rich and covered in glory and money, fantastic. 
But if it doesn't happen, you've taken care of your own destiny and you're not waiting for that. Right. And so you beat the odds, right? Yes. And that totally changed what I encountered because until then I was trying to get uh, advertising in newspapers. I was trying to work through galleries. I was trying to get my name out there and become famous. And the minute I learned that, I'm like, you know, there's no point with that. The goal is really to start making an income. And then fame will happen or not, but that's not the primary goal, you know. Right. But I think there's also another lesson to be learned here, and that is when somebody is rushing you in business, it should be a red flag. And that should be an indication for you to slow down the process because something is not right. And right. if you're inexperienced, uh, you could be totally taken advantage of. Yeah. And uh, so right. I know in business, I mean, there are times where you need to make decisions quickly. But if somebody is rushing you and, you know, they put in an order that morning and it's got to be shipped you know, in a couple of hours, you know, FedEx or whatever, you know, overseas and stuff like that. You just need to slow down. We are not selling first aid supplies. Right. Right. I mean, people that buy from us, whatever it is that we buy from what we offer, are not in a hurry. This is not an emergency situation. Right. If we were selling tires, for example, and somebody calls and said, uh, I need to replace all four tires, I'm going on a trip tomorrow morning, can you ship them urgent? Oh, yeah, I completely understand. It's an emergency, you can't go without your tires. But here, we've never had somebody that called and said, I've got this blank space on my wall and I have to have something by tomorrow morning or by gosh, I'm just going to go nuts. Right. Well, you know, come on, right? And I've never had anybody call me or email me who has not gone on my site. And chosen a photograph, <laughs> at least, you know, picked right. one. Because eventually, beyond everything that you say, which is totally true, there is the fact that people, and we know this, this is one of the fundamental aspects of selling fine art, people buy photographs for emotional reasons. Right. And there was none here. He saw his wife browse my site on her laptop and say, oh my God, well, how many people do that? A lot. Right. They don't buy anything. I mean, we actually have a rule when we sell, and that rule came from the Grand Canyon, that if somebody says beautiful three times, they're out. Right. We just stop interacting with them at the level of trying to make a sale. And the reason for that is because we've never made a sale to somebody that said that my work was beautiful three times. That's correct. And so the rule, it goes like this. Let's say somebody is looking at my work and I go to them and I, and I say, how do you feel about my artwork? And they say, oh, it's beautiful. You know what? You get a pass. That's nice. Great. Thank you. And if I insist and I say, well, what do you like the most about it? And they say, you know, it's just so beautiful. I'm like, you're in danger zone here. It's two. Just one more and you're done. And if I look at them and I say, well, that's great. I mean, I'm so glad you like it. But is there something you are particularly interested in? And they say, oh, it's just everything is so beautiful. We're done. I say, well, thank you for sharing and have a nice day. <laughs> right. Because people don't buy because it's beautiful. They buy because they have an emotional relationship with it. Yes. And a lot of beginning photographers that are starting to sell their work, and they can be very experienced photographers, but they are new at salesmanship. They think that when they hear beautiful, they are guaranteed a sale. Yes. And men, do yes. they get disappointed? They do. Because... They get discouraged. They get yeah. disappointed. They're like, well, this person just told me several times that my work is so beautiful. Why didn't they buy anything? And we had that happen. We're not going to give any names, but we had that happen with a student. 
that is studying marketing with me that had a show, one of his very first shows, a new advice, obviously. And when the show was over, we did a consulting call and I said how it went and so on. How did it go? And he said, well, I had this lady that came to my show and looked at my work and kept saying that everything was so beautiful. And I was like, well, fantastic. Which one are you going to buy? And she walked away and bought nothing. And I had to teach him the three beautiful and you're out rule. Because that's what we call it, you know, three beautifuls and you're out. And he was like, oh, my God, I did not know that. I said, well, that's what you're learning, you know. I said, but don't forget it because that's an absolute rule. Right. I mean, we have made, I don't know how many sales, but tens or hundreds of thousands of sales. And over the course of these sales, nobody has said beautiful three times and bought something. No. <laughs> I, so I, I think our data, right, talking in terms of research, is pretty sizable, pretty substantial. It is, you know, yes. We are not wrong. <laughs> we are right. If you don't believe me and you're selling your work, just pay attention the next time somebody says, beautiful, 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 and see if they buy. And if they buy after three, call me. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> so that was the interview with Peter Urban, number 58. Number 59 was about why personal style is important. And I think that this was related to my mastery workshop on DVD on personal style. Then we had one on passion in photography. And that definitely passion is important. Right. You know? It is. And I think we should listen to a little bit of it because a lot of people today that you have all of these self-help books, they're like, I'm committed. I have a plan. I have a schedule. I'm going to work on it every day for this long and I'm going to make it happen. Well, commitment is important. But if you don't have passion, it doesn't make any difference that you work on it three hours a day every single day. Right. And we've seen people that are passionate, that don't have a schedule, and they succeed. Because instead of saying three hours a day, they don't just work on it until they succeed. And so let, let's see what we were saying on this one. This is number 60 here, passion in photography. It's good. Contrast is good. They are sharp. They are the print was good. The yeah. printing was good. Yeah, there's no so. major, you know, it's not like they came out all green as opposed to, you know, and um, all blue or all red and you know, fuzzy and whatnot. But at the same time, you can tell that it's almost like you went through the motions. Right. right? You know? And I think that's when you started to tell the uh, workshop participants, you know, passion in, passion out. If it's not in the photograph, then we as the audience aren't right. going to get it either. If you don't feel it as an artist, you can't expect your audience to feel it. Right. We won't feel it as an audience. It's that simple. It sounds weird because how does it work? Well, it works visually the same as you know anything else. You know, you can tell somebody who does a job that goes simply through the motion because they need to make an income, and somebody who would do it even if they did not get paid. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see it. You know, uh, because when you do it just to go through the motion because you need an income, you just do the minimum. Right. You're not going to go the extra mile. You're not going to be creative. And it's that creativity that's missing, it's that extra mile that's missing. And when you do it because you want to do it and you would do it regardless, that's when you put the extra work. You know? And that's when, in a sense, you start to go beyond what other people do. Interesting. Yeah, that was a nice one. Yeah. And very much on target about passion. Oh, I think yeah. so. Yeah. I remember, I don't remember uh, how old my sister was turning, but... Uh, I remember I painted her portrait. 
That's right. You know, in, in, in watercolor. In, it was monochromatic. Yeah. It was all blue. It was. Yeah. Uh, Payne's gray. Or old gray. But it, I think some it was other ones. sort of blue, right? So, yeah, I had a bluish tint to it. Yeah. And uh, I had originally taken the photograph. Right. So I had no problem painting from it because yeah. everything was done by me. I first I took a black and white photograph right. and then I did a painting of her and then uh, I gave it to her for her birthday. I had it framed. I signed it. And when she saw it, she burst into tears and she started mm. crying. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong? And she said, you make me look so beautiful, you know? And I said, well, you are beautiful. You know, I said to me, you're, you're the most beautiful person, one of the most beautiful people I know. Yeah. But her emotion. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because uh, to this day, that portrait that I painted of her hangs in her bedroom. Right. You know, in her bedroom yeah. and stuff. And I remember uh, getting criticism from my parents that I didn't go out and buy her a birthday gift. Mm -hmm. That I, quote, made it, you know. Ah. So I guess it wasn't as uh, mm -hmm. in their eyes, you know. That's sort of odd. It was really weird. Yeah. And so I had it's to... It's a very limiting I had concept to, of a gift. I mean, Oh, it you, is. I had to make, totally disregard what they said. If you make the gift, it's obviously much more difficult than if you go and buy the gift. Right, right. It's almost like your parents are telling you, take the easy way out, just buy something. Yeah, well... I mean, what, the, what do you think was the motivation behind that? The fact that you did not spend any money? Yeah, a monetary thing. Yeah, you but know, I mean, you spent a lot of time. Well, yes, yes. It's, it's, and I, I did fr have it framed and everything, mm. but uh, so yeah, I had to disregard one, everything one, that they said. One other thing that I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you just have to ignore yeah. things as an artist. And, you know, and even if it's your parents, you know, sometimes they just, you, you know. You put it into the big bag of things that you don't understand. Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, this was a podcast <laughs> on passion. <laughs> and, and then after that, we have a series of podcasts having four episodes on the different mastery workshops on DVD, starting with the Photoshop Adjustment Layers Mastery, then the Composition Mastery, two of them, and then one on Travis Terry plays the Native American Flute, which is again on the second music CD that we recorded. And the first one was Navajoland, and I think the second one was about the Grand Canyon. No, actually, what happened here is I did a movie with a slideshow of Antelope Canyon photographs. You must have, because... Yeah. And to that, I put the music of Travis Terry. And one of the reasons why I put it is because it goes very well with the photographs. You know, it's very inspirational, very relaxing. And the second reason is because I own the rights to this music. And so I can't be accused of infringing. Because that's really one of the issues with buying music. You know, even though it says royalty free, it has so many conditions that it can be a real challenge to make sure that you are using it properly. Right. And so, so far, I have avoided buying or using royalty-free music. I've only used uh, the music that we recorded with Travis. And I'd like to change the introduction and the end of the podcast, and I'm not sure how to do it. And I might actually record my own music because I tried to play synthesizer. I have several Moog synthesizers. I have a mini Moog. 
and then I have a sub 37 Moog and I think that between the two of them I should be able to create a short piece that I can use at the beginning and the end of uh, the recordings. But music for me is an ongoing work in progress where I'm very good at buying music gear but I'm not <laughs> as good at playing <laughs> the musical instruments. So that's what it was. So let's go back and I, I thought we should listen to a little excerpt of the Photoshop Adjustment Layers Mastery Workshop on DVD, which to this day is really one of my most successful and popular Mastery Workshops on DVD. It is. And that's because it teaches the fundamental approach to raw conversion and then to optimization, which is all done using layers in Photoshop. But it also, you have a workflow. Right. You know. Well, everybody and, has uh, a workflow, but a lot of people don't have an effective workflow. Right. Or they have somebody else's workflow that's not adapted to what we want to do. I mean, if you use a workflow designed to create documentation, you're not going to create art. And my workflow obviously has one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to create the kind of work that I create. And it is designed to create artistic, fine art landscape photographs. Right. So let's listen to a little bit of it and see what we get. And that's a movie also on uh, excerpt of the tutorial. So it shows some of the things that I teach in the tutorial. Select middle gray here and then just click in the image and that will fill the layer with middle gray. And as you can see, there's no consequences. It doesn't change anything. And then you take the pen brush, which is here, set the foreground to black, the background to white. Make sure you have an opacity of 100% and then a flow of just a few percent. And I'm gonna put 2% um, on the quick step that describes this process here. I say 5%, but that's really a maximum. You really wanna go less than that, maybe 2%, 1%. It depends on the photograph and it depends on how you like to work, of course. Set a brush with a very soft radius hardness, that is no hardness at all. And the size of the brush is basically um, your test and it depends also on the size of the photograph so here we have 90 pixel brush but it's a very small photograph on a larger photograph we would have to have a much bigger brush and then just brush or paint over the image and you're not going to see anything on the image because this is a purely transparent layer but when you release the mouse key and you press command z or alt z you see that we have darkened this image and so you have to be very careful because the effects are quite powerful and here, what I did on this layer, which was created exactly the way I described here, is darken around the vignette. I had a feeling when I was reading the photograph that the edges of the vignette were just too visible. So, so an, a short excerpt of um, me processing a photograph on this tutorial on the Adjustment Layers Mastery Workshop on DVD. And the reason why I decided to include some excerpts of the different mastery workshops on DVD in the podcast is to introduce people to the contents, you know, to show them what there is in these tutorials that can help them create their photographs or improve the quality of their photographs. It goes in the direction that we talked about yesterday, which is how versatile the podcast is. Right. And it has many different aspects to it. It's not just you and I talking. It's not just on the concept of art. It's a lot of different things. It's interviews, it's of course discussions, it's series, 
Right. After, exactly. After this uh, series of uh, podcasts on the different mastery workshops on DVD, we started a series on living in Navajo land. Right. You know, that's I think six episodes. And then now we have a series that was about what is art. And, and here we are doing a series on the podcast story. And so you have this series, you have these interviews, you have excerpts from my mastery workshops, you have excerpts from Travis Terry's music, and then you have interviews, and then you had the print reviews. And I think that's what is really one of the unique aspects of this podcast is the diversity of uh, different subjects. Oh, yes. And I think it's good to have the samplers for the mastery DVDs because they're so extensive. There is so much material on there. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't necessarily know the difference between each mastery DVD. No. By going on the website. And so these little DVD samplers, when you go through them, they're very informative and Mm -hmm. because they're so comprehensive. But, you know, before the Adjustment Layers Mastery DVD, the printing DVD was number one because in 2006, nobody had anything like that for sale. Yeah, the Printing Mastery Workshop on DVD was a breakthrough. I mean, it It was, uh, you know, it it was extremely popular. It still is popular. It is. And uh, truly was something that was entirely new. Right. Because there was nothing on workflow. There was little ebooks, there was little pieces of the puzzle, but nobody had created something that go from beginning to end. Right. And so the printing mastery workshop on DVD is the entire process from taking a photo in the field all the way to matting, framing, and even protecting it in... Uh, well, you start with color theory. I start with color theory, yeah. and I go through the whole process of creating a photograph, printing it, obviously converting it, optimizing it, printing it, matting it, framing it, and then all the way into storage, how to protect it and and so on. And then after I created that, I realized that a lot of people wanted to really look at my workflow in great detail. And I did not have time because the DVD became so long, the first one, I didn't have time to go into my workflow in minute detail. And so I decided to create a second tutorial that was just the workflow so just raw conversion and optimization and nothing was redundant no. in the first mastery no DVD. because i did not teach the same techniques and because i went rather fast over the processing part in the first one even though i, I went in detail i did not go into as much depth as i do in uh, the adjustment layers the adjustment layer actually became extremely extremely successful yes you know yes because the, the processing is not something that you can teach in five or ten minutes it is an extensive process and it's extensive because a the process is complex and b you can't process every type of photograph the same way right and so if you teach it well you can't just use one example or even two or three or four examples you have to use a lot of examples yes from different areas in terms of geography because what I do in the Adjustment Layers Mastery workshop on DVD or on USB, it's available on both now because a lot of computers don't have DVD players, so we provide it on the USB flashcard. What it has is it has first me going over the entire processing for one specific photograph, and then it has categories of photographs that are arranged by geographical area. So these geographical area are 
selected for the kind of colors and the type of light and the type of contrast that you find in these places. Oh, yes. So it's not about geography in terms of mountains, prairie, canyons, lakes, uh, rivers, and so on. That's not at all what it is. It's areas grouped by kind of colors, contrast, light, the type of photographic things that we're going to find in those places. And the whole logic is you can't process a photograph that has lots of reds, for example, Antelope Canyon, the same way as, as you would process a photograph from the Eastern Sierra, Exactly. For example, That's exactly that what I was just going to say. Gray. Yeah, right. the gray granite. Yeah. Yes. Or a photograph where you would have lots of blue. Mm-hmm. Or, of course, a photograph where you would have lots of green. I mean, in the Southwest, we don't have green. No. Except for a few trees that are mostly dark green. We don't have much green. So if you go to Wyoming and you photograph the prairie, or if you go to Kansas and you photograph the prairie, and you have lots of green grass or green vegetation, well, you can't approach it the same way as you would approach a photograph of Antelope Canyon. Right. Even the state of Washington, when you get into the redwood right. forest, you yeah. have well, it's all, all of green. The, yeah, yeah, you have mm-hmm. the uh, moss and the ferns. In, in the redwood forest, actually, the rainforest of uh, Washington State, even the light is green because yes. the light filters through all the trees. And it's not peculiar to that forest, but it's specific to all rainforests, and that's a rainforest in Washington State along the coast. The light filters through all the trees, all the leaves, and by the time it reaches the bottom, it's literally green. Right. It has literally taken green color. And if you were to take a color meter in those forests and measure the light, you would have a lot of green. Right. And lots of yellow, because green is yellow. In photography, yellow and green are very close together. But obviously, you can't process that the same way you would process a photograph that has neutral gray or a photograph that has lots of red. And again, a photograph that has very high contrast or low contrast. You know, Antelope Canyon is high contrast. It's extreme contrast. You have shafts of light and deep shadows. Right. You go and you photograph in open shade under a forest canopy, and now you have very low contrast. Right. right. And so how do you handle all of that? Well, that's where the processing tutorial comes in. Yes. And what's very important is that it is specifically for fine art landscape photography. It's not going to work for portraits. It's not going to work for pet photography. It's not going to work for baby photographs. It's not going to work for wedding photographs. It's not going to work for documentary photographs. It's not going to work for reportage. On and on and on and on. Product photography, forget it. It's specifically for fine art landscape photography where the goal is to create art and photograph landscapes. That's really, I think, what's missing in a lot of tutorials and workflow is what we claim to be for everything. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it increases the audience. I mean, instead of having a small audience, which is the case of uh, fine art landscape photography, you now have a large audience, any photographer, but it doesn't work very well for any of them. Right. <laughs> That's the right. drawback. And so I've done something completely different where I'm not trying to address everybody. I'm just trying to address people that do fine art landscape photography. And it works phenomenally well for them because it's exactly what we need. Right. So that's why those are here. And then after that, like I said, after this series of four or five different episodes on the Mastery Workshop on DVD or USB tutorials, we have Native American Flute Music by Travis Terry with photographs of uh, Antelope Canyon. We have one more about the new Advanced Marketing Mastery Workshop on DVD, which I published around 2010, I think, after the recession, with the goal of teaching marketing strategies that I had developed during the recession. Right. And I think we did a seminar at Blackstone in 2012. 
we did a seminar at the Blackstone Country Club, and it right. was a very small seminar because very small. it was still post-recession, I think yeah. 2009, right? I think uh, it was 2009. Yeah, it was either 2009 or 2010. Yeah, and there were still very few people confident enough to start a career in uh, sending fine art photographs. And so we had a very small group, but we did it at Blackstone, and I asked them during the very beginning of the seminar if they knew why we have this seminar at Blackstone, and they did not know the answer. No. You know, but the answer was simple. <laughs> Do you know what the answer was? For me, it was because uh, that's the destination, the lifestyle I want to live. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, exactly for them, what I have no idea. The whole idea of organizing a marketing seminar in a country club is because everybody in a country club has something in common. Right. Everyone's successful. Everybody's successful. Doesn't matter what they did. Everybody, in a sense, comes from a different place. You have people that have been working for, you know, large companies. You have people that had their own business. You have people that are realtors. You have people that are selling cars. You have people that inherited money. I mean, but somehow everybody is successful. Otherwise, we couldn't be there. Right. right? We couldn't afford being there. And so I told them, I told the participants, the reason why we're having this seminar here is because this is a place where people are successful. And the goal of this seminar is to help you be successful. Right. And obviously, another reason why we could organize this is because we had a small group, because it's a relatively small room. And now that we started organizing the marketing seminar again, we had it this year and we had it last year and we'll have it again next year in 2018, we have to go to a hotel because we have a much larger group. We do. Yeah. I and mean, so they're already we, registering yeah, for it, it. It wouldn't be large enough. No. But it was fun, you know. It was fun. It was more intimate, but I remember the number one question when we started that seminar, you asked them, why are we in business? Mm, right. And what you wanted to get from them is to make money. Well, yeah. But that really. wasn't the response. A well, lot of them did not know why do you remember they were starting we a got, business. If any? I don't remember right offhand, but money was not the number one yeah. thing. It's not uncommon. I mean, I yeah. stopped asking that question because, I mean, I do ask the question when people do consulting. Yes. Because I need to know that they are doing this for the right reason. Right. But otherwise, during seminars, I don't because I think it's clear that uh, I'm not going to get the right answers. Right. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand that the only reason to have a business is to make money. Right. Because if you want to fulfill other goals, and that's perfectly fine. I'm not saying that your goal should be to make money. Any other goal except making money can be achieved without having a business. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if people want to improve the life of other people, which is one of the answers that we get when I do ask the question, I want to enrich the life of people by sharing my artwork with them. Well, why do you have to sell it? Right. You can give it to them. You can have a show where nothing is for sale. Or, or you can donate it. You can have a charity. Right. You don't have to have a business. No. Right. Or another thing that they do is they say, well, I want to sell my artwork to recoup the cost of my photography, you know, travel, cameras, uh, consumables, computers, you know, printing, paper, all of that. And I tell them, I say, but that's a very interesting goal because let's say you go to venice on a vacation and it's not for photography it's just for a vacation right right that'd be considered a hobby just like photography because photography is a hobby for them 
And, you know, for the most part, they say yes. I mean, if I go to Venice on a vacation or anywhere for that matter, I mean, they could go to the Bahamas, they could go to Thailand, they could go to Brazil, I mean, France. It doesn't matter, you know, anywhere on vacation. It would be part of having fun, relaxation, a hobby, whatever. And I say, exactly. If you did that, if you went to Venice on a vacation, would you try to recoup the cost of that vacation? Right. <laughs> and I never had anybody say yes. They say, no, I wouldn't. I say, then why do you want to recoup the cost of doing photography? Right. It's just the same. I mean, you're not going to recoup the cost of traveling to Venice. Nobody's going to pay for your hotel room and the gondola trips and uh, the visits to uh, Plaza San Marco and whatnot, you know. <laughs> I know. I agree. It's very interesting that all of a sudden, because we do photography, they want to recoup the cost. Right. right? And right. I understand that the costs are high. And they tell me, they say, but it's high. I mean, it's a lot of money. If I don't recoup it, I have to stop. And I say, well, but what you don't understand is that in business, nobody does business to recoup the cost of business. No. We do business to make a profit. Right, right. <laughs> so I think if people were to say, well, you recoup the cost of your business. Well, of course, I recoup the cost of my business. But I would never do business in order to recoup the cost. I do business because I make a profit. <laughs> it's not enough to just pay for your gear and your supplies. Right. To justify the enormous amount of work that a business necessitates. I mean... We have to work very, very, very hard in order to find customers. And that's the part that most people that start a business don't understand. They're like, is my work good enough for sale? 99 times out of 100, I look at it and I'm like, it's perfectly fine for sale. They say, oh, I, I thought I had to improve it. I say, no, you don't. So well, what do I have to do to do better in business? Because you usually don't do very well. And I'm like, well... Let me ask you this question. How many customers do you have? They're like, I don't have any. I'm like, well, you want to do better in business? Start by having customers. Right, you need Look an audience. for customers. Right. Say, How do I find customers? I say, that's the problem. Right. That's the hard part. Right? And we all have to go through it. A business doesn't exist unless you have customers. Right. If you don't have customers, what you have is an operation that is hoping to make money. That is not a business. <laughs> yes. A business to me is defined a number of different ways. My favorite definition is that a business is an operation, an activity, if you want, that generates sales on a regular basis for a specific amount or a given amount. Right. That is, at the end of the year, if you want to look at it on a yearly basis, or at the end of the month, if you look at it on a monthly basis, you have generated an amount that is predictable, and that is regular. Right. I agree. A business is not an activity where you make a sale once in a great while. One month you make four sales, the next month you make nothing, then the third month you make two sales. That's not a business. No. That's a hobby. Yes, I agree. That's something that you do hoping to make money. Right. We don't do something hoping to make money. Our accountant actually told us that our business income is very regular. It is. It is very regular. And that's not us talking. No, and he's been our accountant for... At least 10 years. At least yeah. 10 years, maybe even more yeah. than 10 years. And he knows what he's talking about because he's got access to the data. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and we are not paying him to evaluate our business. No. These are just no. remarks that he makes because right. it just jumps at him, right? Right. Yeah. So these were some of the things I share in the Advanced Marketing Mastery Workshop on DVD or USB flashcard. 
And I did that because things changed tremendously during the recession. Yes. It was a whole lot easier to make money selling fine art before the recession. Yes, I agree. And one of the reasons, if not the main reason why things changed, is because before the recession, people were spending money, I wouldn't say like crazy, but pretty much without really thinking. Well, do you remember our neighbor, Monica, said that right. they would spend $80 on five shrimp and not think anything about it? That's right, and, yeah. and you're like, what? And then after the recession, they don't even go to the restaurant anymore. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how bad things change. Yeah. You know? yeah, it's like we can't afford yeah. to go to the restaurant. So now, you know, and we, we it, eat at home. It's actually a very good example because you can characterize the difference between before the 2007 recession and after as being like this. Before the recession, people were very liberal with their money. Yes. They spent lavishly. I don't think they were overspending necessarily, but they were not really thinking of the consequences of spending money. Right. After the recession, which is 2009, 2010, and then now it still is ongoing. You know, it's a long lasting consequence. People started thinking more carefully and in some instances very carefully about what they were buying. Right. And they were starting to ask questions like, well, why do I need this? Why should I buy that? If I buy this, then what? You know, if I buy this, then I can't buy this. Is that spending too much on this? Do I really need this? A lot of questions. Yes. You know, yes. and we had to adapt to that. Right. Right. What do you recommend? Do I really need this one here? Tell me what I really need. Well, before we would just say, well, I'll take that one, that one, and that one. Is that okay? I'm like, sure, that's okay. You know, right. let me wrap it up for you. Or now, yeah. or, you know, they'll even say, you know, I'm going to buy one. Which one, right. which mastery DVD do you think I should buy? Yeah, or you which know? photograph, yeah. yeah. And people started using the word budget a whole lot more. It yes. has to fit my budget. Yeah. Oh, okay, what is your budget? So they tell you their budget. Right. And in a sense, that's helpful because once you know their budget, you know what you have to work with, right? If they say my budget is $500, well, you find something around $500. If their budget is $2,000, well, you find something around $2,000. Either one piece or several pieces. Right. But that is really one of the big changes. And we had to adapt. We adapted very well. We do just as well now as before the recession. In, in fact, as I said yesterday, our income did not really drop during the recession. Right. But it's because we knew how to make these changes. And yes. that's what I was sharing in this tutorial. And it's a very important one for people that want to sell their work. Right. Know? So after that, we started on this series called Living in Navajo Land, which I think goes on for six different episodes. It's interrupted by other podcast episodes on different subjects, but it goes on for six different episodes. And we talk about, in each episode, a specific aspect of living in Navajo Land. We talk about Navajo humor, we talk about Navajo food, we talk about hiking on Navajo Land. Yes. We talk about starting a photography business in Navajo Land, the Grand Canyon Art Show. And for that reason, I think we should really wait until the next episode to start on that. Well, there's a lot of material in yeah. there right now. There's a lot of material, yeah. yeah. And I think we should really start on a new episode. I would start on the living in Navajo right. land. You because know. I don't see the point of starting on part one and then letting it go and no. not continuing. I think it's better to do an episode where we talk about six episodes I at the think same so. time. Yeah. You know, obviously this uh, series on podcast story is going to be a long series. I did not know in the beginning. I thought we could just run through all of these. But as I go through these different episodes, I really feel guilty about not talking with some of them. Yes. I, I feel bad about going too fast. 
You know, well, and I think, them. you know, there's a number of them that they cover very important things. Right. And Especially so as we move along. I don't want to just right. go yeah. over them so fast and skip a bunch of them right. because um, some of them are very, very important. But I also think that as we continued the podcast, you know, as we started getting involved in the podcast, the episode became more and more meaningful to us. Yeah, right. I know, think so. But there's a richness that develops over time that we did not think of in the beginning. You know, it's like everything that you start. You don't really know where it's going to go. You know where you're going to start. You know what your goals are. But then what happens over time is unpredictable in a way. And I think that one of the things that happened with the podcast is the richness. Right. You know, that we started adding all of these different elements, in part because we are looking for ideas, but also in part because I think... We don't want it to be boring right. and repetitive. Well, we want to discuss interesting topics and subjects. And and so many things can be included in a podcast right. because it's audio. And so things that may not have much of an interest in video become very interesting as an audio because, you know, what would be interesting about videotaping the two of us talking about what is art, right? I mean, we are not moving. We each have a microphone. We are sitting around a table. I mean, it's going to be one frame for the whole duration. People would fall asleep dying of boredom watching that, right? Right. And the other thing of it is, is we decided we didn't want all of the podcasts to be about business either. Right, right. We wanted it to be yeah. like the series we just finished, What is Art? Yeah, we did not want it to be all about business, but we also did not want the episode to be about technique. We wanted it to be really about art. Right. And that's a real challenge because there's nothing like this. No, there is Nobody isn't. talks about photography as art. I mean, it's... Well, and I'm really looking forward to doing our next series when we start talking about yeah. our art collections. And I think you we'll know, find the same um, as we find here, which is we're not going to be able to go past one or two pieces of art on well, one episode. Well, the Salvador Dali pieces we have, we have sculptures and we have lithographs right. and then we have serigraphs and they're all different. And and we may want to go into art books because we also have a collection of art We do, books. yeah. So I, there's a, you know, yeah. that's a whole field mm. that I'm really excited about doing the new series of mm. podcasts on. It's, it's really interesting because if you go with the model that a lot of people use for podcasts, which is short episodes on a very regular basis they really look at these episodes as containers. And these containers have to be almost watertight. You know, you have to start the subject at the beginning and end the subject at the end of the podcast. And that's not at all what we do. We start the subject, but then it's open-ended. Right. And we don't know exactly where we're going to go. We don't really know how long each episode is going to be. We don't even know if it's going to be a series. And if it's a series, we don't know how many episodes. And I think that's the way it should be, you know, because art is a journey without a destination. Right, I agree. And I, and I think that the podcast at this point, in an organic manner, has become somewhat representative of art as a way of living. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that I regret when I read other things about fine art photography, if I read some because there's so few of it, or if I listen to things about fine art photography. Again, you know, there's not many. And that's the lack of an intellectual dimension to the discussion. People that have intellectual skills don't apply them to art, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And we read the most absurd things. I mean, I had a student that sent me a link to the fact that the artist is dead. It's, I told him, I said, I prefer my podcast. <laughs> you know, it's so an antiquated concept. You know, I mean, Walter Benjamin 
published a piece a long time ago, you know, easily 80 years ago, called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, in which he said that the aura of a painting is never going to be present in a piece that is mechanically reproduced. And so if you have a painting, a painting has an aura, the reproduction of a painting, let's say an offset print, would never have that aura. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's true, you know. But then what do you do with photography where there is no original, right? Right. I mean, is a print an original? If I do an edition of one, is it an original? It's not, right? You know, there is no direct original in photography. The original is the raw capture and it looks like nothing, right? And I think that it's a nihilist uh, approach to fine art to say, you know, the aura is gone. Well, perhaps, you know, or artists are dead. Well, perhaps. I mean, it's much more important to think the way I think, which is that we have evolved. There's been an evolution. There's been a transformation. Right. And look at photography in the context, not so much of whether art is dead or not. It's not dead. Artists are not dead but in terms of language and the change of language. And that one of the aspects of the change of language that we have encountered is that in today's society, people have opposing discourse. That is, they have very different opinions on the same exact subject. And you have to pick your own decision as to where you're going to go, you know, right. what side you're going to pick. Right. Because you can't say that somebody is wrong because they believe that the artist is dead. Right. You know, or you can't say that Benjamin is wrong because a painting reproduction doesn't have an aura. They are neither right or wrong. They just have a different opinion. Right. Yeah. And I think these are things that, you know, you just need to decide for yourself which way you want to go or what you what you think. The nineteenth century and definitely the twentieth century really marked the beginning of opposing discourses. You don't have that before. If you look at the Renaissance, for example, and of course the pre-Renaissance times, art was looked at pretty much the same way by everybody. Right. It was religious. Right. You know? And the goal was basically represent things so that we keep them for posterity. Right. You start with the Renaissance and there is a sort of a rejuvenation of the arts and pretty much people started using different mediums, different techniques. And it led very slowly, you know, in the beginning, with an opposing approach, you know, which is if you paint a photograph by looking in a mirror, is it still a painting, right? Right. Or is it a representation of what you see in the mirror, right? Which is Van Eyck, right? Because Van Eyck did these uh, panoramic paintings that were basically seen that he would see into a curved mirror, a round curved mirror. Right. Or if you draw, Instead of drawing from nature using a sketchbook, if you draw using a camera obscura. And oh, uh, yes. during the Renaissance, they created these very large camera obscuras, very entire rooms. Right. They would have a room with a blank canvas on one end, a very small pinhole on the other, and they would project the landscape. You know, you don't need anything else, right? right. Just light entering the pinhole will project the landscape upside down on the back wall. Right. And they started drawing that, and then they would flip right. the canvas right side up and paint. Is that still a painting? And again, both questions are not possible to be answered, except if you have opposing discourses. And you have people that say yes and people that say no. Right. And that led to the beginning of of what we have now, which is you have people that are like, this is art, this is not art. Well, believe it or not, when Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel, nobody said this is not art. 
there was no opposing discourses. It was art. If the Pope pays Michelangelo to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling, it's art. Right. <laughs> easier, simpler times. Right. Know? Not to say that I want to go back to those days. You know, I no. don't want to go back to the palace of the Doge and all of that. But all of that to say that it's very important to realize that, A, we have opposing discourses in art, in other aspects of our society as well. And you have to pick your side and side not fight agree. endlessly with the other side because you'll never prove them wrong. Just like you'll never prove yourself right to them. My favorite saying, my favorite attitude with that, and I teach that to students, and I can't tell you how many of them have been so grateful to get that answer. My favorite saying to people that come and have a negative opinion of what you do is to simply look at them and say, listen, why don't you go find the work of an artist whose work you like instead of pestering artists whose work you don't like? Because... A, you're not going to change my mind, and B, you're going to get very tired and very bored very quickly here. Just move on. You don't like my work? Point taken. Thank you for sharing. Have a nice day. Right. <laughs> and I don't think it's rude. And it's dismissive. Because you, at some point, you have to put an end to it. It's not rude. It's not rude to say to somebody, thank you for sharing. Right. Have a nice day. Absolutely. I'm not interested in discussing this any further. Right. I'm not here for that purpose. I did not come here to hear opposing arguments about my work. Mm-hmm. You know, my audience are people who like my work, not people who don't like my work. So from the look of it, it seems that you're not my audience. So let's just part ways, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's just agree to disagree and move on. You know, and, and I think that that to me is fundamentally important when you look at a situation where you have opposing discourses, because all day long you're going to have arguments. Right. All day long. Right. Because it's not one person that comes in. And you convince them and you convince that group. This is not a group. We are individuals. And so all day long, you're going to have to convince the next one and the next one and the next one. No, we don't have time for that. Right. You know, it's not enjoyable. <laughs> so anyway, a lot of the things that we learn about art, we actually learn them on a reservation and, you know, living in Neverland. And I think we all talk about that when we get to the next series of episodes and that will be starting at number 66, Living in Navajo Land, part one, right. where we talk about starting a business, a photography business in Navajo Land. And so this will take place in what I think will be part four I think of so. the podcast story. Because yes. this right now that you're listening to is part three, and the next one will be part four. And so, as usual, we thank you for listening to our podcast, and we hope to have you again as listener on the next episode. Thank you for listening.